podcast of the ATA Slavic Languages Division. I'm your host and division administrator, Eugenia Tietz-Sokolska. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with literary translator Marian Schwartz. She has translated Russian classics such as Anna Karenina and Oblomov, as well as contemporary fiction and nonfiction, including such authors as Mikhail Shishkin, Olga Slavnikova, and Leonid Yusefovich. She is the recipient of numerous honors, including two NEA translation fellowships, the 2014 Read Russia Prize for Contemporary Literature, and the 2018 Linda Gaborio Award for Translation from the Banff Center for Arts and Creativity. She is also a past president of the American Literary Translators Association. Her most recent translation, the novel Brisbane by Eugene Bodolaskin, was released earlier this month. Now, on with the show. Marian Schwartz, welcome to Slovo. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here with us. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you for asking me. Before we get into talking about your latest translation, uh, let's start off with a question that we've asked all of our guests. How did you get into translation in the first place? And have you always been a literary translator? I have always been a literary translator, but I've always done a wide range of things. I've always considered myself a literary translator. I actually kind of lucked into it. When I went to graduate school at the University of Texas, it was filled with some very uh, exciting people who were translating. It was kind of an unusual thing in 1973 for any academic to be translating, but Paul Schmidt was there, John Bolt was there, Sidney Monis was there, uh, Charlotte Douglas was there, um, Richard Sylvester. So all these people were interested in translation and they were interested in translating, for the most part, really interesting, um, mostly Silver Age uh, poetry and drama. And Carol Anschutz was there for a while. So it was a very exciting time in Russian literature. That was when those works were just starting to become available and be studied. So the first translation I did I think it's the first one published was done with my advisor who was Richard Sylvester. And it was one of, uh, talk about ambitious. When you're young, you do things that you absolutely should not do. Um, it was a, one of uh, Tsitaeva's prose, um, prose pieces. She has a whole collection of prose pieces about individual poets. And this is the one about Kuzmin called Nizdeshni Vechir. And it's, we happened to hit it right. An artist was putting out the full volume, and now I'm blocking on the name of the translator who did the other pieces, but this is the only one she had not done, or one of the ones she had not done, and they included it in that. So that was one of my first publications. Wow. Um, yeah. so to take a step back, how did you get interested in Russian? When did you start learning it? I started college with French already, pretty much fluent in French. And I thought I was going to learn 13 languages and work at the UN, which is the most stereotyped linguist, linguistic dream that anybody <laughs> has ever heard. And Russian was the hardest one. And when I got there, this was at Harvard, they said, well, you have enough credits, AP credits, that if you can choose your major, if you can complete your major in six semesters, you can graduate in six semesters. And I said, that sounds good. So I just, it was 1969 and we did not really much believe in the future. 
Um, oh. Or if there was going to be a future, it was going to be very different. We didn't, we weren't exactly planning careers or looking at life paths. We were taking it as it came pretty much. So I did Russian at Harvard and then um, I did a summer at Middlebury, which mm-hmm. was really important because Harvard taught Russian like a dead language. I did not know the word, I swear, I did not know the word ruchka. For- All I knew was piro. Oh, for pen. Wow. For pen. Yeah. I only knew Piro. And I didn't, I mean, and when we learned the date of case, they just handed us a 20 page handout. And that's how we learned the date of case. So I had a lot of theoretical knowledge, but couldn't say a word. And so then I went to Middlebury. That was great. Then I could speak. And then I went to Leningrad in, um, on the CIE semester program in the spring of 73. So by then, my Russian was very good. So when I got to, to Texas, to UT, I was teaching Russian as a graduate student for one year. Yeah. That's how I learned Russian. Wow. Well, I mean, it sounds like if you, you weren't planning a career, but it certainly has, has worked out well for you. I actually, thought, I actually thought I was going to go into publishing. So when oh, I left graduate school, when I left graduate school, I went to New York and well, I stayed for one year and translated a book and then moved to New York and got a job in publishing and uh, spent two years in an office, which are the only two years I've ever spent in an office. I'm completely unfit for an office. <laughs> a lot of apparently. us freelancers <laughs> can probably relate. Yes. So how do you choose what books to work on? Do publishers come to you? Do you pitch to them? And has that changed over time? And now that you mentioned that you, you did work in publishing briefly, how, did that experience help you find your way in the publishing world? Yes, I, I highly recommend it for all, for tr- people who are not interested in teaching, mm-hmm. uh, of which there are many translators who are not interested in teaching. Um, I, you know, when you get that survey from the U.S. Census saying, what industry are you in? I always say I'm in publishing industry because that's who pays me. That's who I work for as publishers. I think it was actually invaluable because it showed me what the place of the translator is in the whole process of publishing a book. It told me how, uh, just how the, how a book goes from idea to you know, printed book, every stage of it, what do you, what, what does an editor have to do to get the editorial board to, to accept a book? What, what is the sales staff going to say? What, what is the copy editor's role in it? What is, what is the scheduling? What is the proofreading? Um, because I worked in a small house, which is also a really good idea, you get a much bigger view of the of the publication process, mm-hmm. and I think that there's hardly anything a translator can do that would prepare them better for functioning in the industry than working in publishing. The problem with publishing is that it pays terribly. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe better than an adjunct professor, but certainly on that level. Um, and I discovered after having hired many copy editors myself that I could definitely make more money freelance than I could in house. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're disciplined, if you're a self-starter, that's an excellent avenue. And it teaches you a lot about just editing a text. 
and how you read a text with a stranger's eye, which of course you have to do as a translator. So that was one question. Uh, so how do yeah. you, when you're thinking of a new, of a new book to translate, mm -hmm. where, where do you find them? Or do publishers come to you say, Hey, we have this book that we want to translate. Could you do it? Is that a thing that happens? Uh, it does happen. Oh. Um, actually, uh, I would say that I am probably one of the, for someone who's been doing that for so long, I'm not very good at pitching books, maybe 10 of the books I've pitched have been published and I've translated about a hundred books. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and most of those are recently, most mm -hmm. of them are recently. There are authors who I've been very interested in. I've been interested in women writers from the very beginning and made a big effort to get them published mostly in stories. But of course, Berberova was an exception and I've done a lot of her. I've met editors at like Alta conferences or Slavic conferences. Uh, I became friends with um, Jonathan Brandt when he was at Yale through a Slavic conference. I met him, we sat at the same table and we talked and I've done a lot of books with him. Now he's at Evo, but he was at Yale for quite a while. It's not, it's not just being a good translator, it's making an effort to meet people. You really have to make an effort. And if that means volunteering for World Voices Festival or for two line, you know, for organizations that do events, publishers, whatever it is, people are going to say, people are going to know you personally. And when someone says, oh, I need a Russian translator for something. And, oh, I met this wonderful person, did a great job setting up stair chairs. Um, I bet she'd do a good job. I mean, it's not necessarily based on them knowing anything about what you do. Uh, it's because they know you. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how the world works. So I've made a certain, considering how much I like to be alone, I've pushed myself to be out and meet a certain number of people mm -hmm. over the years. Um, certainly through Alta has helped tremendously. So it's, it's a combination of, of having been asked and asked because I know the editors largely. It's pretty rare that it's been um, an editor who doesn't know me. Sometimes it's through the author. Have authors uh, reached out to you directly and looking for somebody to yeah. translate? Yes, or authors who, yes, definitely. You know, sometimes like the Yusufovich book, Horseman of the Sands, is a book I loved. And I knew that it was a book for Jill Schoolman at Archipelago. I met Jill at a conference 30 years ago or when she was just starting the press. And, you know, every time I'd see her, she'd say, well, do you have something for us? And I'd say, no, because I knew her taste. <laughs> I didn't have anything for her. I didn't think that I, I hadn't found anything that suited her. And then I read this and I said, oh, Jill's going to like this. And I sent it in. And eight days later, we had an agreement because I knew the, the press. You have to know what a press is looking for mm -hmm. and what an editor is looking for. Yeah. So do you, I assume then you read a lot in Russian and how do you, you know, how do you look for current Russian literature to, to find new stuff to translate? It's gotten a lot easier now that so much is electronic in the old days when things weren't electronic and you had less access to the range of things that were being published. Mind you, it's only 
in the second half of my life that that it's been post-Soviet. In Soviet days, we didn't know anything about what was going on in the right. Soviet Union. There was dissident literature, which was important, which was the only thing, more or less. And there was also a lot of discovery of things that had been lost in the 20th century. That was different probably for Russian than for other literatures, because there was both lost emigre literature, and then there was uh, literature that either got didn't get published at all in Russia or in the Soviet Union or got published very obscurely and in odd, you know, mm -hmm. the journal of the locomotives of Russia or something, or, you know, some other country. Um, so it's been a, it's been a mix. It's definitely been a mix. Yeah. Of how I get projects. Okay. So your most recent one, um, which is Brisbane, if I'm pronouncing mm -hmm. that correctly by Eugene Vodolaskin. And that mm -hmm. was just released earlier this month. Can you talk a little bit about the book and what stood out to you about it? This was a book that came to me. I did not, I had not read it when and I was asked to do it, but Vodolaskin is somebody whose work I know pretty well. I've read quite a lot of it. Uh, usually Lisa Hayden translates him and she does a fantastic job. She was not available for this one. She was completely booked up and I guess she suggested I'm, I'm assuming they su she suggested me or I have met Vodolaskin in Moscow. So he knew me mm -hmm. and he knows uh, Yusufovich, who's one of my favorite authors. So it wasn't unusual that he that they asked me to do it. And I was thrilled because he's quite the he's a very fine writer. There's mm -hmm. it's such a pleasure to write to translate someone who is just writes exquisitely, which he does. Um, he has such an ear for style and register and everything is so varied that the, the voices are varied. They're very, they ring very true. And one of the things that I liked about it at the time, I mean, and mind you, this is at least a year ago that this mm -hmm. all started is that it's about a classical guitarist and I play classical guitar. So it was, for me, I was like, you're, you got to be kidding. There's a classical <laughs> guitarist in here. So the music part of it was a lot of fun for me. And, and I took great pains over making that correct, um, including the theoretical stuff. But of course, what's been interesting since it's been published. So the story is of the, for those who haven't read it, which is probably most people, because it just came out, it's about a class about a concertizing guitarist who discovers that he has Parkinson's at the very beginning. And that basic setup comes in the first chapter. And then the book proceeds to alternate two threads. So there's the alternating chapters of the present when he's confronting this issue and all the ramifications of it. And then a second line that starts from when he's a child and uh, is first starting to play a musical instrument, bring, bringing him up to adulthood and his, his uh, success. And what's interesting is, and this is all Vodolaskin, I hope I brought this off, is that the voices are very different. The, the narrative voices, the, the voice of the present has a lot of dialogue. It moves very quickly. It has a very open feel to it. Um, and the alternating chapters of the past are much more traditional, much more, much denser. There's a lot of um, 
there's a lot of wordplay. There's a lot of philosophical issues. There are religious issues, cultural issues that come up. The relationships. Well, there's a lot about relationships in the present tense too, but the old relationships are really explored in great depth in the um, past thread. So when the book came out, Galina Yusufovich, her review, she loved it. And she talked about how it was a, a book about music, which made perfect sense to me, not only as a musician, but the structure is very musical. And there's a lot about sound and how language sounds. So the musical end, end of it really rang home for me. But then February 24th happened. And all of a sudden, what you what's jumped out was the fact that this man was born in Kiev, was had a Ukrainian father, Russian mother, himself dealing with the kind of duality of culture, of nationality and cultural identity that is so common, so common that Yusufovich didn't even mention it because it's, it's a pretty widespread phenomenon. And although I think it's very extremely well done, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was something that you could expect in someone like that. And then of course, it's been published by Plow Press, which has a Christian uh, connection. So a lot of the reviews have been about the Christian aspects of it, mm -hmm. which completely went right by me. Um, uh, so, so there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Oh, yes. It sure sounds like it. So it, when you were translating, so I assume you, you were probably, you had probably finished translating by the time the war in Ukraine actually started, right? Oh, it was, it was already in press and right. print, going to had gone to press. So, yeah. so what you're saying is when, when you were translating, you know, the, the fact that this main character, you know, is, is linked to both Russian and Ukrainian cultures, it's, it's almost taken for granted, right? Because that's true for so many people. Mm -hmm. But then once, mm -hmm. you know, once tensions rose, once the war actually broke out, right, that, that does jump out at you. And so that is it, a theme in there, right? It, it, it is a up. theme. It is a theme because it's a it's and it's played out in his relationship largely with his father, which is an mm -hmm. important thread in the book. His father always speaks Ukrainian, and although the son, as a boy, the main character goes to a Ukrainian language elementary school, then there's discussion of the Ukrainian language and how fascinated he is by it, but he doesn't become a Ukrainian speaker. He, I mean, he can speak Ukrainian, but he's a Russian speaker. And it becomes, it's a very subtle issue between the father and son that is played out in a lot of ways through the language. But mm -hmm. there's one great passage where uh, Gleb, the main character, comes back and visits his father and he says, he jokes with him and he says, time to join the empire and, <laughs> and, oh, and yeah that goes over very differently now <laughs> comes over very well it was a joke yeah um but it was a joke you could make then you can't make it now right. um and he explains you know this is it's not these language these cultures may be very close but he he feels them he the emotional connection and the emotional content of the, of the two cultures for him as embodied in the language are 
like night and day. Wow, that, I mean, that sounds like it is, it sounds like a very complex book to begin with. And now to, to be reading it in the current context, I mean, it just, it just sounds very rich. You know, there's a lot mm-hmm. to, to dig yeah. into there. So it's, it's really interesting. And you mentioned that, you know, this author has other books and that there's somebody else who has been translating. So I was curious mm-hmm. if you, so it sounds like you did read those translations because you, you say it's the, you know, the, the other translator did a wonderful job, I've, but did you specifically try to keep any kind of consistent style or, you know, to take anything from those translations? No, no. Uh, I would say that's one thing that I doubt any trans. I think that's the one thing a translator almost never does mm-hmm. because they are, I mean, that's the whole fun is writing it yourself. <laughs> I mean, why would you try to write like somebody else if you even could? Um, no, I read them not because I was going to do Brisbane, but just because I like the books and I mm-hmm. like um, Vodolaskin. I guess I enjoy her translation. So I mm-hmm. did read them in, in her translation. He's, he's a pleasure to read in Russian, however. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually just about to start reading one of the books that I read first in English. And I'm going to go back and read it in Russian because... I'm sure I'll, it'll mm-hmm. be fantastic. Yeah. So how do you approach then bringing through the original, the author's style into the translation? So how, how do you think about that? So I say this as somebody who is not a literary translator and I know my limits. I know that I'm not good at specifically this of understanding what, you know, the, are the elements of a unique mm-hmm. style. So, mm-hmm. you know, how do you think about that when you're translating? I think the first place you start is having a good understanding of what standard Russian is, what the standard language is. And then you look at the language and see how it deviates from standard language. And that's something that I think only comes from having read and translated a wide variety of materials. It's one of the reasons I really am suspicious of translators who only do, you know, beautiful poetry or, I don't know, or or one genre or another, because they're not getting experience seeing what the standards of other genres are. So Mm -hmm. when I, so I know what standard spoken Russian sounds like, but I also know what journalism sounds like. So if I can identify something as journalistic, then I can create a, use a journalistic voice in English, or if something is bureaucraties, which of course there's a lot of from Soviet era, um, you want to recreate that. If someone is less educated, you can tell that too. How do you recreate that? Well, for example, in Oblomov, uh, the servant is very smart. Oblomov's manservant is, or serf, he's actually a serf at that point, um, is very smart. And that comes, you understand his intelligence by exactly what he says, but how he says it is, for example, he doesn't use dependent clauses. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And there's a translation that uses dependent clauses. Uh, someone of that education level isn't going to use a dependent clause. So, so, so you know, you can see that he is smart, but uh, that he maybe did not have a formal education. That he de- isn't uh, used to that language, that he mm-hmm. doesn't, that he would have no reason to be, I mean, I don't think many people speak with dependent clauses, but certainly some of the translations of Oblomov have this guy speaking in dependent with dependent clauses, which is mm-hmm. very jar- jarring. It, he doesn't sound like a serf, mm-hmm. uh, an uneducated serf. 
there is, you know, there's just so many different types of, of voice of uh, voices with Vodolaskin. Uh, most of the people, especially in the present tense and the present uh, thread are pretty much educated people, but every once in a while, somebody will blow in who's just not and who's crude and, and that's just fun. I mean, usually it's, it ends up being funny. Um, mm -hmm. Not always, but sometimes uh, there's one point where a, a young woman's mother barges in and she's just says exactly what she thinks and does exactly what she wants. And it's, it's pretty, she's pretty direct, shall we say of speech. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's question of, of swearing, you know, and, and obscenities, you know, what's, what's appropriate to different people um, being able to identify what the exclamations are and, and what their connotations are. And, I, I did a long time ago, I did a story by Dina Rubina and in it, a single mother hires a young woman who she's, she's a doctor and she's met this young woman at the clinic and she needs, and the doctor needs someone to look after her child. And she mm -hmm. thinks this young woman is, is good. And when the child starts speaking, she's got some really shocking obscenities in her voice, in her language, because this woman he's, she's try she's hired is actually a gang leader. She's very nice to the daughter, but she's actually a criminal and she has, she's very crude. And this word comes out and I can't even, I have to look it up sometime because I've told the story many times, but the kid says something that it's not so matter, so much a matter of what the lexical meaning of what she says is. It's that a three-year-old absolutely cannot say it. So you have to choose a, an obscenity in English that is beyond the pale for an English speaker. <laughs> or you would have um, a similar shock if a, you know, if a three-year-old yes. came to you and said that. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter what the lexical meaning of the original one. The point is what its effect is. Mm -hmm. Where can people find this book that just came out? I know you mentioned the, the publisher. Yeah, the, the, the publisher is Plow Press. Mm -hmm. They have just launched a series they've been around for quite a while they have a quarterly as well a magazine which Vodolaskin has done at least one essay in there that I translated maybe more and they have launched a series in translation and this is the first book and they've done a fantastic job they have a beautiful cover they've made a huge effort with promotion and uh, I've been very impressed with them. We'll see where they go with it, who they, who else they decide to translate. That'll be very interesting to see. So you can, I would go to your independent bookstore. They're going to have it okay. um, at least soon. It mm -hmm. just came out May uh, last week. And I would personally buy it through the press. If I, mm -hmm. if I don't have a bookstore, I would buy it through the press directly because they make more money that way. Rather than, rather than the middleman, rather than the middleman right. making money. Right. Is, is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners as we're wrapping up here? Well, I thought maybe I would talk about one other thing in the, in Brisbane translation. Mm -hmm. At one point he starts, there's a reason that it includes a great number of palindromes or at least several, more than one palindrome that to me is several or many. <laughs> uh, and there aren't, 
Russian doesn't do palindromes as well, easily as English because it doesn't have as many. We we have we take our roots from so many different languages that it gives us more flexibility in language in turning words around. You can go from a Germanic word to a, rom- a romance word or a Hindu word or something like Hindi word. So it's it's actually not the first time I've come across palindromes in Mikhail Shishkin's Maiden Hair. There's an entire section of palindromes that when I came to it, I had no idea what was going on. It's a pretty confusing book anyway, but um, I didn't know. And he said, oh, I just started writing palindromes. So uh, with palindromes, you don't translate palindromes. You find palindromes that fit the content and fit the mood. I don't know how anybody writes palindromes. I, I'm not sure how that happens. That, that's beyond your pay grade. Yeah, it's it's some kind of strange mind. Um, but in the uh, in Brisbane, it's a newspaper, just a really cheap, minor minor newspaper that uh, is called Palindrome because all of its headlines are palindromes. And when he it does this, it does, and so they're kind of funny. Uh, they're kind of ridiculous, actually. Whereas the other in Shishkin, it was they were beautiful. These are kind of ridiculous. And uh, one of them just astonished me because it included the name of one of the characters, a really odd name. The name was Klishuk, Klishuk. And that was the first word of the palindrome. And I thought, wow, he found a palindrome with this guy's name in it. And obviously I wasn't going to find a palindrome that had Klishuk in it. Uh, That was not going to happen. And so I went ahead and found a, a different palindrome. There, with the internet, there's hundreds of palindromes out there. You just have to run through them and see which ones work. And I found a different one. Actually, I thought it was really great. It was one of the better ones. And, and I thought about it and I thought, which came first? The name of the palindrome. And then I realized that the name came, the palindrome came first. Right. had the palindrome that had a name in it. It's not a major character, but it's mm-hmm. a character who appears frequently. And uh, and he took the name. And then I verified it with him. I said, you took it from the palindrome, right? You didn't start with that name and then find a palindrome with it. He said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that that's kind of. Oh, that sounds fun. That's fun. That was fun. Yeah. yeah. Palindrome. I would say that on. What makes this book different from, say, Lauris, which is his most famous book, is that this one is an easier book to read. It's much, much, um, although it's it's kind of chock full of interesting things, it's it's a very good read. It's it's mm-hmm. a fun book to read. It moves along very quickly. In fact, it moves along very quickly. The chapters are short and you get these great bites that you can just do a chapter and, oh, that was a great chapter and come back and do another chapter and, or do two chapters. But um, I would say that this is one of his most engaging and readable novels. It, it sounds like and it has... this is in the context of me liking them all so right. far. So it sounds like it has kind of a, a playful side to it. Yes. Which I imagine was, was also interesting to translate challenging perhaps, but interesting. Mm-hmm. This has been fascinating. Um, I'm really glad you could join us. And and thanks again for being on the Slovo podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. 
Thank you for tuning in to Slovo, the podcast of the ATA Slavic Languages Division. If you enjoyed this show, we invite you to subscribe and listen to past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.